Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Like many filmmakers and cinephiles, I consider The Godfather and Godfather 2 collectively uh, the greatest piece of at least American cinema ever created. There's one scene in particular that I often think about as a filmmaker, and it's probably not the one you're thinking of. In The Godfather 2, when they're in Cuba, Michael Corleone goes and sees Hyman Roth, and in their conversation, he asks him, who had Frank Pantangeli killed? Hyman Roth then proceeds to lecture Michael about the facts of the life and the world that they live in. And in doing so, says the line, this is the business we've chosen. Apologies for the bad impression. In spite of what we see, the glitz and glamour of Hollywood and con, big premieres, uh, being a filmmaker is not easy. It's a grind. It takes dedication, perseverance, luck, the ability to hear the word no a lot. We've spoken to guests in the past about how there's no specific definition for what a filmmaker is, nor a single blueprint how to become one. Um, Everyone's pathway is different. Our guest today is a filmmaker who has carved her own path over her career. She has worked in news at major networks and affiliates, commercials, music videos for some of the most well-known brands and recording artists today. Uh, She's written, directed, and produced documentaries, short films, and feature films. I am very pleased to welcome Joycelyn Bahar to the podcast. Joycelyn, welcome. Hi, Howie. Thank you. So I gave what I like to call the 100,000-foot view of your career. Uh, You've done a lot, very diverse portfolio across different mediums and genres. It's been an interesting journey for you, I am sure. But tell us, where did it really all begin? It began with wanting to be a foreign correspondent. I wanted to travel the world and I wanted to see it firsthand. I didn't want it to be spoon fed. I wanted to see what was really out there, what really made the news. Why was this important? Why was this becoming history? I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be a a witness firsthand. I graduated high school and I went and applied for an internship at WCIX here in Miami and at the time was independent. It was a family friend who was working the assignment desk and she said, oh, we have an internship program. Why don't you come and meet the assignment editor? I went, I met with him, I interviewed and he went to tell me that, he proceeded to tell me that he doesn't hire freshmen in college. You have to be a junior or senior in college to get an internship. And I looked at him and I said, well, most people go through life never knowing what they want to do. And this is what I I want to do. And I stopped him in his track. He looked at me and said, okay, the job is yours. You're an intern. You start next week. So my freshman year in college, I started as an intern at WCIX. And while I was there, and the great thing about CIX was that it was independent. So it wasn't a union shop. And what that means is you can get more hands-on experience than you would if you were at a network like an ABC affiliate or CBS affiliate, any one of those. So being 18 years old, coming into WCIX, I was allowed to touch everything, the cameras, the editing machines, whatever it was, I was allowed to touch and play. I could go out on the field with the reporters. There weren't all these restrictions. I even got to go up in a helicopter one time. There was, uh, I think it was the first time at the time, Joe Robbie Stadium was new and the Dolphins were playing and it was a Super Bowl and there was going to be a lot of traffic and a lot going on. So they basically needed helicopter aerial shots and they took me along with them and I got to go in the helicopter. I mean, today that would never happen. You have too many insurance restrictions and that would never happen. But here I was 18 years old. I was up in a helicopter. That was exciting. Um, The thing that everyone stressed and when you're young and you're walking into these kinds of places, the people with more experience will share their wisdom with you. And you better listen mm-hmm. because they're telling you they're they're guiding your way. And they would ask me what I wanted to do. And I was very, very clear that I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I wasn't looking to be a news anchor. I wasn't looking to be I wanted to be out in the field. And they said, OK, learn how to write. And you're thinking, well, this is television and it's a visual medium. The guidance here was learn how to write. So I 
went to apply to journalism school at the University of Florida. I didn't go the route of broadcast like many people do who want to be on television. I actually went the route of journalism to learn how to write. And that's how it began. Okay, so you studied journalism in college. Then after college, you start on your path to try to become a foreign correspondent? A little bit. Uh, yeah, I was still, I was still, the mindset was still that. Uh, my last semester in college, actually in college, I was working for the radio station. So I would develop some on-air experience, but not necessarily on camera and write my own news stories. Um, no, my last semester in college, I got an internship with ABC News and Nightline. So I packed my bags. That's quite a little story in itself, how that came to be. But to make a long story short, I packed my bags after my last final, drove home, and my mother looked at me and she said, what happened? I said, I'm moving to New York. <laughs> I got an internship <laughs> with Nightline and I looked at me and was very proud. We went on from there. Yes, the this was during the Ted Koppel days of Nightline. And I, of course, I used to watch Peter Jennings nightly, mm -hmm. and I was a fan of all the ABC anchors, and um, I was very excited. And you mentioned WCIX in Miami. You know, I didn't grow up down here. I grew up in New York, and there was WPI. Channel 11, WWOR, Channel 9, which were the, the independent stations. I remember WPIX uh, would broadcast the Yankee games before everything turned uber corporate. I miss a little bit of those independent television stations and, and the flexibility they had in their programming and being able to really um, serve their communities. I think it's something that's been lost. It felt that way. Yes. It felt like a community channel. So going back to high school, what did you do in high school that may have influenced your later choices through college and afterwards? I don't necessarily know that anything in high school particularly led me in that direction. I was involved in student government. I don't know that that was it. I, w I played sports. That certainly didn't lead me in that direction, although I did continue on as an athlete throughout my years and still today. But I don't know that it was actually anything in high school that other than I used to watch the news nightly. It's interesting. I, I call that the zigzag because, you know, in high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. A lot of people had no idea what they wanted to do, but you still knew what you wanted to do in spite of not revolving. Right? Like a lot of people, you know, who go into this industry acted in high school and go through or they were involved in some kind of theater productions. So after working in, in journalism and news, when did you start to transition more into called filmmaking or commercial work or music videos? So that was by accident. And I've met a lot of people in the industry that will tell you they ended up in the film industry by accident. I had left the news industry. I had been in it for about, I think, five or six years now. I was very young when I started. I was 18. At that point, I was burnt out and this wasn't somehow the dream wasn't wasn't happening. It wasn't the more I learned, the more I realized that what made the news wasn't actually the news. Mm -hmm. And I was becoming disappointed and disillusioned and um, I needed a break. And I went to the ice rink because I was a figure skater when I was younger and started skating again. I met one of the mothers at the ice rink and she worked in the film industry and she asked me what I had done and I told her I worked in television news. She said, well, I work in film production. She said, "I why don't you come and work as a PA for me? And I needed a job, so I said yes and I worked a few jobs as a PA and before I knew it, I was coordinating and later production managing and soon to become a film producer. The, the transition was I had to basically learn the difference between television production and film production. And it took me a little bit, but I figured it out and soon I was on my way and the transition had been made and now I was in the film industry. What were some of those early projects? Oh gosh, I can't even remember it. I would actually have to look at my resume <laughs> to tell you what those commercials are, were. Are there any uh, memorable projects from that time that stick out? Maybe not an early one, but once you, you kind of got into the groove. There were a lot of music videos. There were a lot of low budget music videos and trying to pull them off with very little money. They were we would shoot them all night to have the locations. I remember we would use these locations downtown that have incredible interior design and architecture, and um, they would look great on camera. But in order to get those buildings, we would have to come in at about six o'clock, seven o'clock in the evening. 
evening when downtown shuts down and we would have to shoot all night through the night to get that music video. And you're looking at about, you know, by the time the sun was rising, we were wrapping out so that the next workday could start as if like little elves, like we never existed. Pretty much what independent filmmaking is like these days. So after, you know, you worked in commercials, you worked in music videos, you were, you were working your way up through the chain. When did you decide to start producing, uh, writing and directing your own? It really wasn't a decision. It was something that happened. My parents had passed away. Uh, one of a producer friend of mine who was Cuban and my family happens to be Cuban and Jewish, understood the Cuban, I would say the, the way Cubans are and um, thought that the mix of being Cuban and Jewish was even funnier and thought it would be a good idea to, why don't you do a documentary about Cuban Jews? Jubins, as we call it. And I let it sit. And um, one day I just started writing a treatment on what that would look like. And I started writing it up and I just started going. It was coming through me. And I put it together in a nice little booklet and I put it on the shelf and I let it sit. About a year later, and that was a year after my parents had passed. They passed eight months apart. So about a year after that, I picked it up off the shelf and I said, I want to do this. So I approached some people that I knew would be interested in getting the story of the Cuban Jews out there and asked them if they would help me financially. And um, I had some money of my own that I had saved up. And I just started, I started collecting interviews with people. I started filming. Um, I had a lot of people around me crew wise that amazingly and magically were willing to jump on board with me to help me bring this to life and very grateful for that. So after you film it, you know, putting it together, you know, where'd it go from there? I actually had purchased editing software and I started editing as I was going. I did a paper cut, then I put it together. I knew there were still pieces missing. I had to travel to get those pieces. One of them, I had to go to Turkey. That was easy. Okay, I got on a plane and I went and I shot what I had to shoot. I was basically following people's stories. So they were laying out the foundation of where I would be going, what I would be shooting. The difficult part was Cuba because being an American, and that time we were not allowed to travel. This was in 2005, 2004. We were not allowed to travel to Cuba. So how do you get a film crew to Cuba to film the missing pieces that you're trying to pick up? So I, my crew and I decided that we would go and we went illegally. Actually had gotten an invitation from the Jewish community. That enabled us to get into Cuba and with our equipment to be able to film in Cuba. What I was not able to get through the U.S. was allowance to leave the U.S. to go to Cuba. We figured it out. We got in. The magic happened. So I want to go back to something you said earlier that really sticks out in my mind going back to at At 18 years old, you knew what you wanted to do. You explored that different. Going back, you know, again to your childhood, was there, you know, you wanted to see the world. You wanted to see things as they happened. Was there any like event or was there, you know, a specific you know, foreign correspondent that really inspired you or influenced you? Oh, that's a good question. Christiane Amanpour, if you remember. Remember. I do. I thought she was great. And every time she was on, I think she was working for CNN at the time. She was new. And every time she was on, I would just watch her and I would listen to her. And I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, that was definitely a uh, interesting time because really she, uh, you know, I guess use a mafia reference. She made her bones really uh, with the first Gulf War. CNN was basically broadcasting that live. And that changed a lot of things. Me being a veteran uh, as well, I'm a little bit younger, was not in the Gulf War, but I remember like watching it and seeing her. And then, um, you know, also today... Um, you know, Martha Raddatz kind of picked up that mantle from her as another great um, you know, woman correspondent where I think, you know, over time, it's still been a challenge for women to like get into those, you know, really traditional male roles. Oh, a foreign correspondent like embedded or out in a war zone. That was a new concept in 1990 and 1991. So it definitely makes sense that she would be a uh, inspiration. Oh, she was a badass. And um, I've always liked adventure and when I watch movies and martial arts movies. So for me, it would just look like an adventure to be out there. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I want to do that. Living in New York is always an adventure in itself. Outside of news, you know, you mentioned your know, movies, you know, martial arts and adventure. Any specific movies or TV shows growing up you think influenced you? And at the moment, none in particular come to mind. Okay. 
So I also want to go back when you made the decision to make your own documentary. Like you said, you had to figure out a way to get into Cuba, you know, different things. You had to learn a lot of different things, you know, things that maybe aren't necessarily taught in school, just just things you learn. And I think that's a important part of being a filmmaker. You can learn the hard skills, the nuts and bolts, making a picture, scheduling and lighting that, but there's there's a lot of other pieces that you really have to know if you want a chance at being successful. Was there a, a mentor for you or someone that you could go back to, or did you really learn about that on your own? Kind of just figured it out on my own. You really have to learn to think fast. And I do accredit my New York experience for learning to think fast on my feet. Um, it was an internship, but I have to tell you that the time I spent in New York, not only working for the network, but just living in New York City, the one thing you do learn is how to think fast on your feet. And um, you do. You just and maybe it was it was something natural that just came to me always. I just kind of figured things out. And, and that's really what you have to do. My favorite question is always, what do you do? What is what does a producer do? What does a director? Do? I mean, how do you even I have a really hard time explaining that to people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and my first answer is always everything. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about that. What are the skills needed to be successful? Both, I guess you could break it into hard skills and soft skills. Donna, we're going to take a quick break. But before that, Paradoxical Films and Cine Videotech are pleased to bring you Tell Your Story, a hands-on masterclass taught directly by Egon Stefan Jr. In this class, you will learn how to work with actual 16 millimeter film, film cameras, as well as how to load and change magazines. Visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates, pricing, and how to enroll. Hurry, as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly. This is Howard Brand with the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back. Today, I am joined by Joycelyn Bahar. Joycelyn, I think when people decide to get into this business, they usually fall into one of two groups. Those who know exactly where they want to focus and build a career on. You know, they want to be a camera person. They want to do editing, work in G&A, uh, you know, maybe even maybe even an assistant director. Others take a broader approach and want to be in a job that usually falls under producing uh, or within that spectrum. You mentioned earlier, you know, what does a producer do? They do everything, which is true. So as a producer, you know, when you're making films, you're making music videos, you're making commercials, you obviously have to know the nuts and bolts or the X's and O's. You have to know scheduling. You have to know what the different crew positions are. You have to know whether you're union or not union. You have to know things that really can be learned, things that, that are taught on paper. You also touched on earlier that there's these other skills, these soft skills that you really have to know or learn if you want to be successful in the industry. You talked about thinking on your feet, problem solving. So can you talk about that? Like what are some of those, I think of sports, I think of intangibles. This guy may not have the greatest stats, but look, he hustles. He uh, you know, plays great defense type of things. What are some of those non-filmmaking centric skills that somebody really should develop if they want to be successful as a filmmaker? So I want to start by saying, I don't know that I wanted to be a producer. It happened. But I think that there are natural skills or talents that someone might possess. And maybe that's how I got kind of moved into that area of the film world. But for one thing, you need to have strong organizational skills. You need to be able to multitask. And these are things that are not taught. It's something that's innate to the person. When somebody comes to work with me for the first time, I'm watching them. I'm watching the way they move. I'm watching the way they organize themselves. I'm watching the way that they organize things. I mean, can they multitask? If you can't multitask, don't go this way because you're handling a hundred different things at one time and you need to be able to spatially organize it in a way that makes sense because it looks like this, as I'm saying, is chaos and you're basically organizing chaos. And nobody teaches you that. You just sort of have to do it. Something else that's really important, you know, the kind of, I think you learned as you became producing was dealing with the financial aspect, managing the money, but also going out and raising for your own projects. What was that like? It was difficult uh, because I would say that's probably the hardest part is to ask somebody for money. And um, is this cause worthy? Is it, I mean, first you have to believe in your cause because if you don't believe in your own cause, no one else is going to. And you have to present it in a way that 
is appealing. Okay, maybe you're a big picture person and you have the vision and you can see what it's going to look like. But try to take that and try to sell that to people who don't have a vision. Maybe they have the deep pockets, but they don't necessarily have a vision. So you're trying to communicate that to somebody and say, hey, listen, this is going to look like this and look like that. Maybe that's the hardest part is trying to convey your vision to someone else who may not necessarily have a vision. Right. It's a combination of a little bit of what's in it for them and a little bit of kind of bringing it down to their level, you know, especially, you know, not speaking in film jargon, kind of really, I would call it, you know, breaking it down Marine style, you know, so it's digestible to people. Did you find when you first started doing this that talking, like you mentioned earlier, explaining what do you do? Uh, the tendency is to go into jargon type of things to explain things. Uh, you know, Did you find getting away from that vocabulary to explain to regular people was a challenge? I think the best way to define a producer is your job is to make it happen. And that could mean absolutely anything. Your skill level and your ability to manage and your ability to manifest things out of absolutely nothing is going to improve as time goes on. It's basically taking something that doesn't exist, creating it and bringing it over here. With that in mind, somebody comes to you and they say, Joycelyn, I had this idea. I want you to produce it. How does that conversation start from your end? Like what questions do you ask? The first thing I ask is give me a creative vision of what it is that you would like to see uh, and what we call a treatment. And I take that treatment and I basically put dollars to it. What is it going to take? But by putting dollars to it, that means I know how to bring it to life. I need to know art direction. I need to know location. I need to know crew, lighting, camera. How are we going to shoot this? When are we going to shoot this? And I'm basically breaking it down. How many days is it going to take? How many hours in those days is it going to take to break it down? For everything, for every movement that you make, there's a dollar value. So you have to basically take the whole thing, put it together and give it that dollar value. Okay. It's going going to cost you this. It's going to take this long. It's going to take this many prep days. It's going to take this many shoot days. And um, now we have a picture. Now, do you do that yourself or do you have a team that you work with or a partner or is there like one UPM or... An AD that you know that can really that helps you break things down like that. No, I I do it all on my own. So you you've broken it down. You've gone back to say the client. Here's the budget. Here's what's going to take. They give you the green light. What's the next step? Basically, they have to secure the funds, and you start calling up your crew, and you start hire your locations people. They share the concept with them. They go out. They come back. They present pictures. Then starts the approval process. You present that to the clients. They have to approve everything along the way, and of course the director as well. Um, shares his vision of what it is that he would like to see and how he would like to present the client's vision, it goes along those lines. And a lot of that is done pre-production before cameras roll. Is it different when you're shooting a commercial versus a music video versus a, a film? Not necessarily. Uh, maybe the, the amount of time that you have to do something, but necessarily the... Um, I think the process is the same. Have you ever had a project where the client comes to you and or you're trying to make something and just just the vision is not there like you just can't you can't seem to find common ground and you know something and you want to make the project they want to make the project but just you know the the visions are different um you know that that type of of back and forth i wouldn't say that the visions are are necessarily different what happens when you're out there you don't necessarily find what they're looking for or it's not available whether it's politically not available or the location's not available so you you present options and that's where the vision starts to change okay we can't do this but we can do this so okay if we go here well then this has to change and little by little the vision starts changing but everybody's involved in the process as it starts to shift. Um, so at the end, everybody's happy and is aware of what it is that they're going to get. If you've seen the comic strips, this is what the client asked for. This mm -hmm. is what the client got. And that happened. That does happen a lot. And then the other thing that happens is sometimes, OK, the client is giving you this much money to produce something that looks like this, but this really costs this much more. Mm -hmm. So, oh, and everybody starts adding along the way. So the budget starts to increase. So what do you do? You have to keep coming back to the client and explaining to the client why to be able to get this, you need to pay a little more or a lot more. And little by little, those approvals, again, are 
I think when people want to get into producing, they underestimate, and you mentioned it earlier, how important the communication skills are, how important it is to communicate. Do you find that going back to journalism, you know, it basically falls under the communication spectrum, I'd, I'd say. Do you think that helped you, you know, in some way, you know, becoming a good communicator? Absolutely. Because when you learn how to write, you're learning how to communicate efficiently. And that's basically what you're doing with people is you're communicating to them efficiently and effectively and trying to sell your point, which is what you're doing when you're writing a story. When you went to Turkey for your documentary, was there, if not a language barrier, were there any communications barriers? Were there any challenges being there that you had to figure out a way to work through? Not at all, actually. Everybody, most everybody speaks English. My family is actually Turkish, the background. Okay. And I look Turkish. So and I didn't know that until I got there. And I looked at all the other women that were there and I was like, oh, wow, that's what I look like. So it was really easy to fit in that way. And um, when people would ask me what I was doing and I would tell them everybody was very open to it and very helpful. So I didn't have any of those barriers. Without saying anything that may get you into trouble, what was it like in Cuba trying to make your film? Uh, It was we had some moments that were interesting, but we got through them. And um, a lot of times you have to pay people off to get what you need. And we did what we had to do and we got what we needed. It almost sounds like you can make a movie about making a movie. Like that sounds adventurous. I mean, you've seen things with, you know, the payoffs and having to bribe local police. And like you said, finding a way to make things work. That's basically part of producing is just got to make it happen. When you went to film in Cuba, it makes me makes me wonder if that brought you back to wanting to be a foreign correspondent and have that, you know, adventurous life. I'm sure you experienced some adventures when you were over there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. It was I was living a dream. First, being in Cuba at all was a dream because this was something I had only heard about through my parents growing up. It was a place I never thought I'd see. And when I got there, I remember the day that we, we got, we arrived and we went to, there was a hotel that's in front of the Malecon and we were picking up our car rental. And as I was left, they left me there by myself as they went to go get the keys to the car. I turned around, there's these huge panoramic windows and I turned around and it's facing the Malecon and I looked out and there it was. The Malecon was just something that over the years was, it was romanticized and it had just become real. And at that moment, this was surreal. And I had just entered my dream. And from that moment on, the entire experience from the time I got there till the time I left was a bubble. And everything that happened within that space was miraculous. Did it have to be almost guerrilla filmmaking? A little bit. Um, We were searching for needles in a haystack. We were covering pieces of the film that were missing. We had to find them. The entire film was laid out and there were black slots everywhere where I was missing images. So I knew what had to be filled and I knew what I was looking for. So basically we were traveling the country looking for these pieces and it was it was like a treasure hunt. Was the Cuban Jewish community helping at all? Or That was actually how we got into the country was we had to have an invitation from the Jewish community in order to film there. And we went, we met with them, we interviewed them. They were very helpful. They offered a big chunk of the information that filled the story. Again, I was presenting both sides. I was presenting the side of the people, the exiles who left in 59 when Castro came into power. And I was also presenting the side of those who decided to stay, whose political views were very different from those who left. And I think the thing to learn here is first, you can't be judgmental. Everybody makes their decision based on their own situation and everybody has different beliefs. And I think at the time people made their their decisions based on that, on their needs, on what they believed at the time, and also maybe just not knowing. A lot of people didn't know what was about to happen to this country. I think looking back, that's a project that you're obviously very, very proud of. Are there other projects that you look back on and say, wow, this this one was such a challenge and I'm so proud of myself for making it happen or, you know, another like sense of pride in your portfolio? So every job is a challenge. You just don't know where those challenges are going to come from. It keeps it from being boring. In my mindset, there is no job that I've ever gone into and thought, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen. Because I think that if you have that mindset, you're not going to make it happen. Not for one second can you think that you don't know how you're going to make it happen. You might not know, but you're just going to do it. Once you're in, you're in it. You will figure it out and you will get out. In addition to you know your travels to Cuba, your travels to Turkey, Are there any other on-location experiences that you remember that stand out that were interesting? 
once further along in my career, again, on the commercial side, just traveling. I mean, we did some cruise ship jobs. Those were always arduous, but fun because you're traveling with your crew and you develop this camaraderie with them and you're basically going to war with them. Actually, that's every job. And along, the, you know, over the years, you develop this battle type. It's the word I'm looking for. Like we went to battle together. Camaraderie. Yeah. It's, it's a camaraderie that you develop with people over the years and you might not work with them for a while and then you'll see them again five, 10 years later, but you're always going to have that bond because you went to war together. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why every job has to feel like you went to war. To echo that analogy, it's, uh, I think it's the idea that you've, I don't want to say suffered together, but you've been in those trenches, you know, filmmaking. I do, as a veteran, I do hesitate to compare things to war, but it's a lot different than than being in an office with people working on a project. It's very, you, um, I think the one thing you could compare it to is you do sweat, bleed, and cry on, on a film set oftentimes. You know, I'd like to touch on that because a lot of people see the glamour of the business or you work with celebrities or you get to travel or you get to work in the movies or you get to work on a music video or a commercial or whatever, whatever that is. And people see the end result and they have this glamorized version of what it means to be in the film industry. And they don't really see the blood, sweat and tears that we live and that these are this is the life that we take on. And it's a it's a serious commitment. And listen, every career has its its difficulties and its challenges. And I don't want to say that it's harder than anybody else's job in the world. But the difference, I think, is is that people glamorize what we do. And they're really if you really knew what it takes to get an image on camera, you would see that it's not a glamorous industry. There's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And I want to make it very clear about the financial side, because especially when you work freelance, things can be flowing and the money can be coming in and it's great, but then it dries up. And what are you going to do then? Well, you better have saved up some finances in order to get through that hard period. Can you survive that? And can you mentally survive not having a job to go to every single day? What are you going to do to keep yourself stable, to keep yourself grounded when the work isn't coming in? And sometimes you're wondering, well, what did I do? Well, maybe you did nothing. Maybe the job just didn't come for you. This one wasn't for you and that one's not for you. But the one that is for you will come for you when the time is right. And there's a lot of trust that you have to place in the universe about jobs and timing and what's for you and what's not for you. Can it be a competitive field? Absolutely. Does it have to be? No. Wait your turn. Those are great points, and I'm glad you brought those up because I want to expand on them more and dig a little deeper into that. Again, that goes back to what I said at the beginning. This is the business we've chosen. It's hard. Uh, it's not as glamorous, but we're going to take another quick break. But before that, we would like to thank partners that helped make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968, providing equipment, support, and training. M2 Productions, who provides directing, writing, and assistant director services. And ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. We are back with Joyce Limbahar. We started talking about how tough it is to be in a filmmaker. It's a lifestyle. It's a tempo of life. That's a world of its own. It's not for everybody. And somebody who wants to be a filmmaker really need to come in with their eyes wide open, uh, especially when you talk about the financial aspect, trying to earn a living. Can you talk a little bit about about what a what is that really like? That financial uncertainty that must definitely lead to other challenges, other issues that filmmakers experience. Can you talk about what some of those would be? Sure. There's absolutely there's the psychology. Putting the finances aside is what do you do? How do you stay busy? How do you keep yourself sharp? How do you keep moving forward when and there's no work in sight. And you don't know when that next job is going to come in. I, for one, practice Kung Fu and I work out. I train. I have a side gig. I'm a trainer. So I train people. And then I spend a lot of time practicing and I keep myself. I have a side gig. I keep myself busy working out and I keep learning 
whatever I can. If you're not working, you're learning. You have to keep your skills sharp and you have to keep yourself on top of things. You need to know what's going on. And like I said, you need to stay on top of it. Is there something you could say to filmmakers who are experiencing challenges to help them not want to give up? Because I think it's very easy for people to want to give up. Everybody has their why. You're just, you have to find your own why. Why are you here? What do you want out of this? What is your big picture? Are you doing it for a paycheck? Are you doing it because you want to create something? Are you doing it because you want to be a part of something? I can't answer that for anybody else, but that's an individual question. But I would have to say you have to find your why. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why do you keep going? Why do you work 18 hour days? over and over and over again and you're exhausted and you can barely think at the end of a job but you just do it you're an autopilot and you keep going and when that job's over you're just finished and then maybe you get a little break maybe you don't before the next project but you get up and you do it again why that's your why have you ever worked with someone let's say I don't want to say younger, but someone just starting out in their career, trying to break into the business. And you, you could almost see in them that they may not have what it takes or they don't have the commitment or they're just kind of floating through. Have you ever had to have that conversation with someone? Has someone ever come to you for guidance in that way? Yes. People come to me and they ask me, and, and listen, you don't know what you're made of until you're made. And the experiences that you're going to have are going to help shape you. It's not my place to tell somebody that they don't have what it takes. Maybe I can tell them that they don't have the organizational skills and they can't multitask. And maybe this is not the department for you. And maybe you'd be better suited in a different department. But for me to tell them that they don't belong here is not my place. They're going to have to find it and they're also going to have their own experiences. And at some point they're going to wake up and say, hey, this is for me. This is not for me and make their own decisions. Continuing talk, talking about the challenges of filmmaking from abroad. You're a native Miamian. Uh, you've been here. We've seen the film industry come and go. What are some of the challenges of being a filmmaker in this area, You know, in Southern Florida? We've heard from both sides. We've heard you have to get out of the area to be successful. You have to go to a hub. Hollywood, Atlanta, New York, or you can be successful here. Do you have thoughts on that either one way or the other? I think those are choices, personal choices. What, again, what do you want? I, for me, it was very important to stay with my family. I wanted to be surrounded by my family and I wasn't interested in going to LA or going to New York and now Atlanta, that's the new hotspot. I don't want to leave my family. So even though maybe it's We've lost the volume of work that we used to have at one point. That's not sending me packing and running to Atlanta to be where the next hotspot is. I want to stay with my family. And at this point in my life, I'm not interested in laying down a new a new new groundwork, new foundation. I think convention the popular opinion down here is there's not enough work for people. But hearing from filmmakers like you, there is. What would you say to people who don't think there's a lot of work down here? There's not as much work as there used to be, but there is still work. And if people need to make more and need to work more often, then yes, they should probably go to another market. But I'm willing to stick this one out. Do you think the film industry is going to come back to South Florida? Always. I've been in it for 30, 35 years now. And I've been through the highs and lows multiple times, not just once, but it always comes back. It's can you stick it out? Can you stick it out when it's dry? Can you stick it out when it's busy? Can you ride the wave long enough to stick with it? Well, after 35 years, I've proven myself. But the only one I need to prove myself to is me. On that note, you mentioned Christiane Amapur earlier. Uh, you know, she's a badass woman. Have you experienced any challenges being a woman filmmaker, a woman in the industry? Not really. And I think that's due in part is, I mean, you can consider it a challenge, but as a woman, maybe you do need to be a little bit smarter, a little bit quicker. You do need to be sharp. Um, but I think that if you have that, I don't think that there's a difference. If you don't have it, then maybe you just won't make it. Okay. Were you ever were you ever encouraged to pursue like specific genres, specific mediums, saying, oh, you're as a woman, you should direct makeup commercials or stuff like that, as opposed to just being open creatively? I'll tell you what I did experience. Okay. When I started in television news and still in my early 20s, I would hear a lot, you're too creative. I didn't really know what that meant. And it wasn't later until I had made the switch over into the film industry that I was, the light bulb went off and I said, oh, I didn't belong over there. I'm actually a creative. 
when you moved to the creative side, did anybody ever say you're you're too news oriented? No, that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about your documentary, uh, but haven't had a chance to really talk about some of the films that you've worked on. Can you share some of those experiences and what those were? So I've worked on some independent films and one in particular we shot in the Turks and Caicos. It was called Jungle Juice. We spent five weeks on an island and it felt like we were actually playing Survivor on an island. It's like you said, it's the story. It's the movie between the movie. And if somebody had actually been filming us while we were filming the movie, that in itself was a movie and an adventure. I want to hear more about the Jungle Juice Survivor movie within a movie stories. So the Turks and Caicos is, again, another government that in order to get things off the ground need to be paid in certain ways. For instance, we're bringing over a lot of equipment, a lot of gear, a lot of camera, supplies, and for everything that we bring over, you have to pay a fee. Well, we also need to ship our film out. At the end of every day, we would basically have to cut off our film and send it off counter to counter. So there was a PA standing by who would take the film and then take it to the airport and then put it on the baggage to come back to Miami. And then we would have a service who would pick up the film, take it to the lab. And that was the process by which it was. It was produced. So on one event, we were missing film. And where did it go? Well, basically, we were looking for this missing film for weeks because it never made it to the lab. And finally, after we had wrapped, only to find out and here we were thinking, well, the government took our film, they're holding it back, and they're not going to give it back to us, and they don't want us to leave because maybe a bill wasn't paid. Everything was going through our minds. Well, it turns out that film was basically recanned and reused, and they shot over the footage. So there was the missing footage, but we didn't discover that until after the film had wrapped. So until then, we had all these thoughts in our minds as to where did the film go? Now, there were instances where the government was holding back. When we got there, they basically wouldn't, they would not release our equipment until the fees had been paid. And it took us about three days, which put us back about, th which put us back three days of filming until they released our equipment. And they were basically letting us know who was in charge. Interesting. And when I hear you say about, you know, the film, it was refilmed over. So you have the original footage that was shot on that film. And now you have that second footage that was shot on that film. So you have two unusable um, scenes. So was it as simple as just doing reshoots there? No, it was absolutely not that simple. They basically had to re-edit the movie so that it could go without the missing footage. They had to rewrite it. It makes me think of another thing. You know, previously you know, I worked in project management and whenever you do schedules and budgets, you always budget in time. You know, you always budget in time for overage. You know, if you think you need a million dollars, you budget 1.2. If you think you need six weeks, you budget six and a half or seven. When scheduling a shoot, a film, do you budget in what I like to call the fudge factor or do you really have to keep it specific to the dates and dollar that's that are the actuals? Kind of both. Um, you really do have to keep it specific, but you're constantly moving money around. Uh, money is never, it's, it's never stagnant in the sense of it doesn't just sit here. Okay, so maybe I had some savings here. Well, that doesn't mean I have savings. It just means I have to move it over here or I have to keep it in a little pocket because something's going to come up where I'm going to need that and have to move it. So basically, you're just kind of sliding around. Back on Jungle Juice, what was your position? I was the production coordinator. So what was your what were your days like as a production coordinator? Aside from very long. You get up in the morning, go to work. Like, what did your day entail? Well, if our call was at 6 a.m., I had to be in the office at 5.30 a.m. I had to be there to either anticipate or be there to put out fires. Anything that could possibly come up that day was 
my responsibility. You are the problem solver. You have your hands in every single department. You solve the problems for that department. As a production coordinator in the hierarchy, you work under under the UPM? Yes. What is that working environment like? You know, we talk about filmmaking being on set. Is the production coordinator, a lot of times going back and forth between a set and the office, are you mostly in one or the other? What are the interrelationships like with the other parts of the crew? I think it's different on every job. I'm very hands-on and I go back and forth between the office and set. I try to be everywhere and try to keep a close eye on everything that's happening so that I can be there for them when needed. Do you remember any specific challenges for that shoot? I mean, I know that there were some big stars at the time, I think Rucker Hauer, Robert Wagner, uh, Morgan Fair, Fairchild, you know, obviously dealing with stars is different than dealing with, you know, Joe actor in an independent film, uh, you know, being in a foreign country. Aside from some, some of the stuff you mentioned, what were, what were some of the other issues or things that had to be taken care of on that set that were maybe a little different than other shoots you've been on? We had extras and we would fly in about 50 extras every week. And we would use those extras throughout the week and then fly them out. And then the next, the following week, we would bring in a fresh batch of extras. And this was every week. Is that because it was uh, it was more cost effective to bring them in and out on a weekly basis than keep them there for the long term? Or were they different types of extras that you needed? You couldn't keep using the same extras over and over again. I mean, you could, but visually that wouldn't work out so well. Great. So it definitely sounds like it was a uh, interesting experience. Most definitely. <laughs> We're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back to conclude the episode. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating and then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers and more. Last of all, be sure to also follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We'll be right back. And we are back. Joycelyn, we've talked a lot about your career, what you've done, uh, especially things you've learned along the way. And you've definitely developed I'm sure quite a number of strengths that really help you uh, be successful. Can you talk about what some of those are and how important they are to you in, in your work? I'm going to highlight what I think is the most important thing that I've had to develop. I've had to work on perhaps my arch nemesis, but has become a strength for me over the years. And that would be patience. Can you expand on that? I think that you have to have patience in every aspect of this career, both on the job and in your personal life. Um, things get hectic, things get chaotic, and you have to maintain balance. And your energy sets the tone for the rest of the set and the way that people respond. If you act like a crazy person, everyone else is going to act like a crazy person. If you are in control of yourself, others will remain in control. And you set that tone. Things need to happen yesterday. There's no waiting. It needed to happen. Whatever. If I've asked you for something, it already needed to happen. And that's the speed at which we work. But sometimes things just don't add up. But if you take a breath and you find patience, somehow everything seems to happen just right at the right moment and at the right time. So patience, obviously a big one. Uh, what are some of your other strengths that you think? Definitely time management, multitasking, social skills. You have to be able to speak to everyone and you will work with people from everywhere at all levels, all different ethnic backgrounds, different religions, different everything. And your best attribute would be to find a way to communicate to everyone. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm communicating at my level, but be able to hone in on somebody else and what do they need? Because if you can provide somebody what they need, they're going to be able to deliver what it is that you need. And I think going back to patience also sometimes plays into that because whether it's a, a language barrier or you know, cultural or just different experience level, yes, things have to move quick, but sometimes have you ever found you know, you're explaining something to someone or telling someone you know, what you want and they're just not responding correctly, not understanding that and you, you have to like take a step 
step back and think about breaking it down even more or bring it down even further to their level? That's a perfect question because yes, and that's definitely something I've had to work on over the years is breaking something down, taking a step back, but also recognizing the moment when you have to take the step back because guess what? It's you that has to take the step back, not them. And when I came to understand that, I became much more effective at communicating, getting what I need and keeping a very um, stable environment. And I think some of the things you mentioned that you do in your off time, if we could call it that, you know, you do Kung Fu. Fitness is very important to you and you have a, a side business as a, I guess, a fitness consultant and coach would maybe be the best way to describe it. Can you talk about that? Fitness and nutrition, coaching, and uh, also Tai Chi. Tai Chi is also an important element and that allows me to stay grounded and focused. Are those things that you started doing once you started working in the film industry or did they go back as far as you can remember? No, fitness goes way back. Uh, Kung Fu and Tai Chi started shortly after I started working in the film industry, but fitness was always a staple in my life, even as a child. And you mentioned ice skating. You were a figure skater? I was a figure skater. Do you still skate? Uh, no. Where did you skate growing up? Scott Rake Youth Center on Miami Beach. Yes, believe it or not, we had an ice rink in Miami Beach. Oh, is that still there? It is still there. In addition to... Uh, uh, you know, your fitness, you talked about you always have to be learning, learning new things. And you're learning a couple of new things right now. I am learning a couple of new things and most definitely a great time to be doing that now that there's a writer's strike. I'm actually in camera school, so I'm learning the technical side of the camera. Uh, I've always been able to shoot. Um, I shot a lot of my own documentary, things in the past. It's not the shooting. It's the actual technical work of the camera. Last week, we learned how to load 16 millimeter mags, uh, 35 millimeter mags coming up and how to load them onto the camera. And soon we'll be learning the camera itself. Looking forward to this. Okay. And that's working with film. We are working with film and hopefully we will see the resurgence of film back out. You're also taking some other classes, I understand. I'm also taking a musical theater class and we will be performing Hamilton at the end of the semester. So I'm looking forward to learning the songs and the dances, the choreography and putting it all together and actually performing. Is this the first time doing any kind of acting and singing? No, I've always... Um, when I was a child, I did. And as a figure skater, we would put on performances and I grew up as a dancer as well. So, um, no, they were just things that sort of were left wayside. Is there a project that you want to do that you've been either working on or putting aside or trying to, to get going? I'm always writing. I shouldn't say always there is writer's block, but currently I've been also working on a compilation of short stories that could possibly parlay into short films. I know there's always a tough question because I can't even answer it for myself, but what do you think the future looks like for you? At the moment, I see my future going in a more creative direction, perhaps not as much on the producing side, but more on the visual storytelling side, perhaps writing and maybe directing. I'm glad you brought that up when you talk about the producing side versus the creative side. You can kind of slice that different ways. You know, there's, I think there's producers that do have a lot of creative input and there's producers who are just involved with the money logistics. Have you found as a producer, you've been able to get as involved on the creative side as you wanted? Are you being left out of the creative side more than you want? Is it different for each project? I've been very fortunate. I've actually been able to do both some projects and each project dictates your involvement and your relationship with your director is also going to dictate how much in creative involvement you're going to have. So I've had projects where I'm strictly finances and logistics, and I've had projects where I am the creative producer and my director and I have a great relationship and we work together. We talked about, you know, seeing the Hollywood glitz and glamour and, you know, how much work and not to be sucked in because, you know, filmmaking is difficult. But is there any big name, notable like directors you would, you know, dream to work with, would love to work with one day that are out there? Not not necessarily directors. Um, I would like to work with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Do uh, In a martial arts movie. In a martial arts movie. Is there anything currently that inspires you? Any of the current movies, shows, other pieces of content? I've been binge watching a lot and that's also new for me. I never used to binge watch anything. And there are so many good shows out there that it's so hard to hone in on just one show. I take inspiration from everywhere. I love romantic comedies. I love action adventure. I love history. I draw it from everywhere. Where can our listeners find you, find out more about you? Do you have a website, social media? Social media is 
under jbfit.joycelyn and it's spelled J-B-E-F-I-T dot J-O-Y-C-E-L-Y-N. And I include both fitness and film on my IG. We've had guests on where we've talked about content and we've talked about kind of the new wave of content, 30 second TikTok, Instagram videos versus narrative. And I know fitness has kind of become a big area of the, I guess we call it the influencer world. Have you thought of, you know, talking about different types of content, more short form content, I mean short, like 30 second videos, TikTok, Instagram, and the fitness influencers are a large part of that. Have you ever thought of going into that area? Actually, during the pandemic, since we had a lot of extra time, I posted a lot of fitness videos and that actually put me more in front of the camera, which was a great experience for me. Spending more time in front of the camera, I was producing my own content, my own locations, wardrobe. I actually had some help from my wardrobe stylists and makeup and they would make sure that I looked just right and that everything matched. And um, also my art department would let me know when the sand didn't look right and I had to, I had to rake it during my Tai Chi spots. So everybody took a role in participating in my posts and they were a lot of fun. But yes, um, I do fitness on the side and um, I do get calls for stuff in front of the camera as well. Again, being in the film industry doesn't mean you just do one thing. And it's advantageous to work in every single department over the years, know what it is that it takes to be in every single department. And the more you know, the better you're going to be and the better of service you're going to be to everybody else. Being in front of the camera helps you when you're behind the camera to know how to, again, communicate with the actor. Actor communicates with the director. How do you, what, what are the needs that every single department is going to need? How do you create a fluid set? Yeah. And on that note, you know, we talk about filmmaking, film industry, but someone, I heard someone recently say that it's really the screen industry. You know, it's more than film. It's commercial. It's music videos. It's social media. And that's, I think that's been a big change over the last, obviously the last like 10 years, but going back over the last 30 years, what changes have you seen in the film, the screen industry or film industry as a whole over the course of your career? Everything is game. You can take your phone, you can shoot something, you can edit it on your phone, you can post it. Is it going to be the same quality, the level of production? No. But are you still getting your information out there? Yes. Can you sell something? Yes. And maybe that's the name of the game. Do you have any thoughts on where the future is going? Definitely virtual. Virtual reality or more virtual, like green screen type virtual environment type of filmmaking? I think virtual reality, especially with the advent of, uh, well, it's not the advent, but AI. Can you expand on that a little bit? I really can't. I know that at the moment it's not advanced enough. And then at the same time, I fret for the jobs that it might take from people. And that's probably as much as I would elaborate on it. Do you prefer working with a small crew where you could really engage with everybody on the crew? Or do you prefer working with bigger crews where it's more just engagement like department heads and, you know, really not having to micromanage down to the details? It's not a preference. And having the luxury of working on both, I love working on big jobs are fun. And there's it's great having a lot of people. And sometimes it feels like a big party. But small jobs, well, there's no small jobs, but jobs with a small crew is great because it's a more intimate project and everybody is more hands-on and uh, it's a different type of environment. I like them both. So I'm grateful to have both in my world. What advice would you give to aspiring filmmakers? I don't know that I would have planned going in this direction, but it did happen to me. I don't know that I would change it either. And I continue to go forward with it. And I will continue to go forward because, hey, it's exciting. I want to see what's next. I didn't know what was going to be. And I certainly don't know what's coming ahead of me. But if I had to look back, I think it's been pretty cool. The only thing is you don't know what is going to be required of you. What is life going to require of you to be able to handle those situations, those moments, all those periods that we've talked about and situations. And you don't know that either. And Will you build strength with each one or at some point will you throw the towel in or will you just keep going? Well, I chose to keep going every single time and I'm still walking on the path and and I'm super excited for the next chapter of my life to see where I'm going. There's definitely changes that I've consciously made. I've manifested them. I've been putting them out there for a while and they're all starting to pop up now. And with every breath that I breathe, I, I'm actually in awe that these things are coming down in front of me and I'm able to see them 
and walk into that next space. But that took a lot of work and a lot of strength. And um, but hey, if you want to give it a chance and you think you can do it, then this is for you. My last question. If someone came to you for advice about getting into this industry, what would you tell them that we haven't talked about already? I would probably tell them to turn in another direction. I think the people who have come to me when they ask me that question are people who see the glamorous side of the business and don't really know what it takes to be in this business. Uh, The commitment, the amount of discipline, what you have to give up, things that you have to sacrifice. There's a huge sacrifice. I'm 30 years down the road. And if you had told me that I would have had to sacrifice the things that I did, I never, I couldn't have imagined those sacrifices that I had to make. I mean, and and this is, this is small relative to sacrifices, but when you don't have work coming for a little while, okay, so you'll buy concert tickets and you'll buy, you'll buy plane tickets and you'll plan a vacation and then suddenly a job will come in and that job is going to dictate and you're not going to that concert and you're not taking that vacation. Are you ready to give that up? Very good advice. Uh, Joyce, and thank you so much for being here today. We would gladly welcome you back to the podcast in the future. Really interesting points that you brought up. I think it speaks to a lot of filmmakers and aspiring filmmakers out there and uh I know I've learned some things and and I hope they take to heart what you've said. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Great. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at Cinema Pathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments, suggestions, or feedback for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. This is the Cinema Pathway podcast. We'll see you next time. Lights out.